Hey, good morning, Gretna family. It's Pastor Rob. It's great to see you today. We are in week five of our series, The New Exodus, as we follow the books of Ezra and Nehemiah as they chronicle the return of God's people from exile in Babylon back to their homeland in Israel and in Jerusalem in particular, as they try to rebuild God's temple and the city around it. In the first week, we talked about the promises of God, recognizing that sometimes God works in ways we do not understand and timetables we maybe wouldn't pick for ourselves. But either way, God keeps his promises. He does not fail to keep the promises he has made. And the people of God here in our story are realizing that. He has told them. He prophesied through the prophet Jeremiah. He said, look, I'm going to send you away for 70 years because you've forgotten who I was. And then I'm going to bring you back. And sure enough, in ways that they did not even see coming, uh, he did. He moved the hearts of the Babylonian kings to bring the people back to Israel. Then in week two, we talked about the importance of sacrifice, the importance of giving up something of value to us for the sake of something more important and more worthy, just as God has done for us in giving up his son on the cross. In week three, we talked about the priority of worship, making that a key piece of your life because it cultivates your relationship with God, your connection to him. It's not about currying his favor so much as it is about maintaining and establishing that relationship. Because, you know, any relationship, if you want it to flourish, if you want it to grow, whether it be with a human being or your dog, or most importantly, God, it requires investment, right? Time and energy in order to cultivate that relationship so it can flourish. Last week, we talked about a reality that Ezra and Nehemiah are experiencing through their entire journey, and that's opposition. That there, Though there are those that are rooting for them, though that God is on their side, there are forces working against them to keep them from doing what God has assigned to them. And that's a reality, I think, anytime we're doing something that calls us to move closer to God or calls us to fulfill what God would like us to do. It's just a reality of life, but it doesn't change the fact that God is present and that God is walking with us. He never says he will keep us from all harm. He says he'll be with us through it. And that should give us strength and courage. This week, we're going to look at Ezra and Nehemiah again for godly leadership traits, both in and outside of the church. See, Ezra was a scribe. We, see, we know that from Ezra chapter 7, verse 6. He was a scribe, a Jewish record keeper, a theologian, uh, someone whose job it was to try to understand the expectations of God and to teach it to the people. We might call that person today a pastor, right? Or a preacher or a minister, whatever term you choose to use. But that's kind of what that person was intended to be. Nehemiah, on the other hand, I think I would have assumed that he would also be in that line of scribe or priest, but the truth is Nehemiah was not. Nehemiah was, for all intents and purposes, a politician. Uh, he was a member of the king's court. We know that from Nehemiah chapter 1 as a cupbearer to the king. So he lived in the palace. We also know from Nehemiah chapter 5 verse 14 that he is made governor of Judah. So his capacity to lead and to influence and his sphere of influence really isn't with the, the church or the temple at that time, the people of God directly, so much as it is the society they are a part of. 
that's his responsibility. And I don't know that I have a better word for it other than governor, politician, that would be the connection that we would have today. We elect our politicians. He was appointed. And so he's got a different set of expectations or even demands on him because he's not simply ministering to the people of God as though that's a simple task. It's a different task in many ways. So Ezra was a spiritual leader who influenced the political situation, while Nehemiah was a political leader with a deep faith in God. They were leaders, both of them. And while many leaders are positional in that they hold a title as scribe or governor or supervisor or pastor or whatever, while many leaders have a position of authority by, by virtue of the title they're given, the truth is most leaders in life don't have said titles. Leadership is really the capacity to influence people around you in everyday life. And in certain spheres of our lives, we are leaders. There are some of us that are leaders in our families. Um, there are some of us that are leaders in different spheres in our home. I'll give you an example. Um, when it comes to Heather and I, we have different spheres of leadership. Um, she expects me to be the spiritual leader to teach the kids, and, and I do not always do it as well as I should have, <laughs> or as well as I should, but they expect, she expects me to be the spiritual leader and driver of the things of God for our family. On the other hand, when it comes to things that are going on around the house, uh, that is her sphere. And my role is no longer to lead. My, my role is to say, how can I help you? How can I serve you? So we have different spheres of influence, different sets of expectations, depending on where we are and who we're relating to. If you're at work, chances are you are both a leader and a follower at the same time. If you are a supervisor, you clearly lead others. However, if you are not the owner of the company, chances are someone leads you, right? Someone supervises or manages you, and so you have to take on both roles at the same time. If you're not a supervisor, if you've ever trained anybody for a moment in time, you have led them. You have led them in their development and their growth and their learning of your company and the task at hand. If you are in a friend group, if you have a group of friends, there is almost always someone who is the mom person who kind of takes care of people and keeps them organized and keeps them on task and watches over them when they start to do silly things, right? That person is leading. If you have looked at social media. We have uh, social media influencers that are also leading in that they are influencing people to take on new tasks or try new ideas or follow them, literally follow them, right? On That's what they call it on Snapchat or Instagram or Facebook or TikTok or whatever it is. You're following them, right? So there, there are leaders creating followers, even though they don't have a title so much as just an everyday influence in someone's life. Some people in sports we consider leaders. They are people that we look up to. We say they have all the intangibles. They have great leadership skill. Whatever that might mean, they have the capacity to influence those around them to achieve the goal. The thing is, what I'm trying to help us understand here is that at one point in life we are all leaders. Leadership is more than a title. It's a role we take on. 
in various spheres of our lives. There was a, a Viking named Leif Erikson who, he said this, and probably in his original language, well, confidently in his original language, it's been retranslated a thousand times. But in English, it, it basically translates this, we are all leaders, whether we want to be or not. There is always someone we are influencing, either leading them to good or away from good. And I think that is true. I think the people that we connect with, we have a high capacity to influence, for better or for worse. As God's people, we are doing much the same with the people in our lives, either leading them to God or away from God. And we do that by how we live our lives, by what we prioritize, by how we interact with them, by what we say or don't say. Are we a city on a hill, as Jesus calls for, or are we salt and light engaged in the, in, in the society around us with the people around us, trying to help them see the truth and be a blessing to them as well? Or are we insulated? Are we separating ourselves and are we taking them down a path that really they don't want to go down it whether they know it or not and we definitely don't want them to go down. So we're going to take a look at some leadership traits that Ezra and Nehemiah express in their text that we can take with us not just to determine, not just to look for in the leaders that we follow, but also in, the lead, in becoming the leaders and being the leaders in our daily lives that we want to be. So if you would, we're going to be in Ezra chapter 7 today and Nehemiah chapter 5. If you've been reading along, I hope you have. Um, this will be a great blessing to you, an even greater blessing to you, because you'll have more context to work with um, and more information to fill out some of these things, because we've only got so many minutes here together, right? I could talk for hours and hours and hours, and none of us want that. <laughs> so anyways, Ezra chapter 7, we're going to read verses 6 through 10. Ezra chapter 7, 6 through 10, I'm going to read out of the CSB. It says this, it says, Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he requested because the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. Some of the Israelites, priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, temple servants, accompany, and temple servants accompanied them to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month during the seventh year of the king, and he began the journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month and arrived on the first day of the fifth month since the gracious hand of God was on him. Now Ezra had determined in his heart to study the law of the Lord, obey it, and teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. Study, obey, and teach. When it comes to godly leadership, I think that is the first lesson we can take from here from Ezra. In Ezra 10, 7, verse 10, we just read it. He had determined to study the law of God of the Lord, obey it, and teach its statutes and ordinances in Israel. Study it, obey it, teach it. The study of God's word is intended to be occurring all throughout our lives. It is not supposed to be something we just read it once and you're done. I read through the Bible. <laughs> there are so many layers involved here. The intention is that we're constantly trying to further understand an infinite God. We are finite beings, whether we want to believe so or not. We kind of are. <laughs> and we're trying to understand an infinite God. It's going to take a lifetime of commitment and further even. But I'm not sure that's how we always do things. 
You know, when I was a, a, a freshman in college, I was just telling the story the other day. I was a freshman in college, and my mom calls me and she says, Hey, I just had a parent-teacher conference with your brother's 11th grade history teacher. Her name was Mrs. Gallipole. And I had also had Mrs. Gallipole. And she said, Hey, I just wanted to let you know your name came up in this parent-teacher conference. I said, My name? I've been gone for two years. She said, Well, here's what she said. She said, I like your boys. They're both great. Uh, they're both intelligent. They're both capable. Um, she goes, but I got to tell you, uh, they both put in the minimal amount of effort possible. They don't even come close <laughs> to giving their best, or at least they didn't in my class. And I have to say, if I'm being very frank, that was totally true. And sometimes true with me today that I, I don't always give my absolute best in everything I choose to jump into. And I don't know that you can in all things. I think sometimes you have to measure out, right? What you can invest more in and what you should invest less in. The challenge here with our faith is that I think oftentimes, practically speaking, we invest less in the things of God than maybe we do in other things. We don't continue to chew on his word. We don't continue to study what it means for this stage in my life as I'm growing in my faith to come to represent him better, to understand him better, to understand big words like sanctification and justification and what the difference is. And yes, I think those are things, concepts at least, that we should understand because it helps us fully understand the value and the grace of God. The more time we spend in his presence, the more light gets to shine on us, and that's a good thing because we're a little dark at times. <laughs> and the more opportunity we have for him to transform us, to change us, to be in his presence is to change who we are. But if we don't invest in that, if we don't take the time to constantly study his word and try to understand him better, then sometimes our faith is left wanting, it's left weak, um, and we are left hanging. And that's something I have to remind myself of. Sometimes I have seasons where I'm not as focused as I need to be on the things of God and on growing in him. I'm just, I feel like I'm just trying to tread water and get through my day because I've got so many other things with family and work and all around me that I'm just trying to get through. And it's really easy to kick God to the back burner because the consequences don't feel immediate. They don't feel immediate. But the truth is they are not, they are eternal. And that, that is a much bigger time frame than just what's happening to me in the moment. And I need to remember, and I think most of us need to remember, that following God, studying his word, getting to know who he is and what he's about, is intended to be a lifelong pursuit with eternal benefits. And keeping our eyes focused on that helps us recognize what it means to be his people and to lead others to him rather than away from him. The second part of this is obey, obedience, living out God's desires and God's laws each and every day as we walk through the day. It means, as we just alluded to, putting God first. And that means including putting God before myself. For me, that shows up in tithing. Do I give God the first fruits as he asks for, or do I wait and give him what's 
left. That's what works for me and my family. That's part of the way we worship him. Do I give, give, the God, give God the best part of my day, which by the way is in the morning. I'm far more awake, alert, ready to ride and go and excited in the mornings. I know I'm a morning person. I drive people nuts with that, but I am. Um, and so I give him that time and I, and I put on those other pursuits later in the day. Now, again, there are times when I put myself first and, and I, I regret it. Almost every time I ask myself later, I go, oh my goodness, why did I do that? Why did I change my priority? Because it adds up. It adds up and it affects my relationship with God and it affects my impact on others, my ability to lead them. We also, in obedience to God, there's another aspect of both Nehemiah and Ezra's faith that we don't see in the section we just read, but it is included very much throughout their books. And those are the ideas of prayer and fasting. Um, Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 6, verses 16 and 17, he, he says, when you pray and when you fast, not if you fast or if you pray, it's a given for him. It's a when, it's a given, Matthew chapter 6. But And Ezra and Nehemiah both seem to fully understand that. In Ezra chapter 8, verses 21 through 23, he, they are preparing to leave for, for Jerusalem. They haven't left yet. And it says in verse 21, it says, I proclaimed a fast by the Ahava River so that we might humble ourselves before God and ask him for a safe journey for us, our dependence and all of our possessions. And then in Nehemiah chapter 1, we see that he learns that Jerusalem is in ruins. His first response is to pray and fast. We read about that in the first week. In Nehemiah chapter 9, which we read about a couple of weeks ago, in worshiping God, we see when leading the people through a corporate confession and repentance, Nehemiah declares a time of fasting. This concept of prayer and fasting is intended to, again, connect us with God, but also clear our minds. Uh, There's something about not eating. I don't know about you, but when I have a big fat meal, um, I want to take a nap, right? I'm not as engaged. I feel satisfied in some ways. But Jesus warns against that, right? He says in, in John chapter 4 to the woman at the well, he says, look, you know, you're, you're taking on this, this water in that case, but, and it's going to quench your thirst for right now, but you're going to be thirsty again later. But it is the water of God, he calls it, right? The water that I am offering you, if you drink of it, you will never thirst again. It's this notion that when we deprive ourselves of food, basic sustenance that we think provides us comfort at times and and strength at times, and yes, it's necessary, but when we rely on the strength of God to carry us through, it's interesting how our minds can become clear and we can become more focused on the task at hand, on what he wants us to do. And that's why Jesus says, when you pray and when you fast, it is a given. It should be part of our lives if we are obeying the law that God has written, if we are trying to be the people that he wants us to be, and as he says it in his word. The other way we obey it is by changing behaviors, how we grow, how we change, how we learn, how we respond to adversity. Do we panic? Uh, Do we scream at people? Do we get angry? Or do we respond as God would have us respond, which is to stop and pray, (laughs) 
stop and fast, or do we trust that he will get us through? How do we respond to conflict with others? And how do we respond to correction when someone comes to us and speaks truth in love? Do we defend ourselves immediately, or are we being obedient to God and saying, look, if God is offering me correction or the people of God are offering me correction, am I willing to listen? And that's not easy because I don't know about you, I don't like being corrected. <laughs> I like to think I got this all figured out, but the thing is, if we are following God's law, if we are being the people he wants us to be, correction is part of our lives. We know we're imperfect, we know we're broken, and only the perfect one can really see us from above and see where we are. The last thing he does is teach it. He teaches it to others. And, 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 and our job is to do the same, is to teach it to others either formally or informally. In Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, we, it, he reads, Start a youth out on his way. Even when he grows old, he will not depart from it. That's, that, that, that verse has given people so much angst over the years as they have kids that they, they've raised in the church and they've taught the things of God, but they depart from it at some point. Um, I want to be really clear. That verse is intended to say to convey this thought. If you teach your child the things of God when they're young, they have a shot at not departing from it when they grow older. Uh, the Hebrew there is, is not nearly as you know, lockstep, we're going to do this, 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 and you're going to get that outcome, as it is an encouragement to not neglect the opportunity you have when your kids are small to teach them the things of God because those, they will migrate back to them. They have a chance to migrate back to them. But if they never learned it, they can't. It also means to teach it formally in the formal roles we have. If you are a Sunday school teacher or a pastor or whatever role you have in the church, if you have an opportunity to engage people, do it. But also, I think, in your workplace. Um, I have a, a story. When I was a operations director for a small company in Indianapolis, um, I held a meeting on leadership development. And one of the things I brought up was a writer named John Maxwell, who was a leadership guru, so to speak, and also a Christian, also a follower of God. And I made a biblical reference in that meeting. And i got to tell you, before I made that reference, I was so nervous. I was so sure somebody was going to light me up that my boss was going to get mad because I didn't clear it with her first. She was the president of the company, right? So I was leading a lot of people, but also following somebody else, right? I know how that works. And I was so concerned it was going to go haywire, go wrong. And the truth is, somebody did complain. Somebody said, look, he's bringing up Bible stuff in, a, in our meeting. Is that okay? And my boss... <laughs> said, look, if this are, these are his convictions, if this is what's really important to him, and if there's something we can glean as a company from it, then it's fine with me. And I know you can't depend on that response, but I think sometimes we shy away from opportunities we have in the workplace. It doesn't have to be as blatant as that. But if there are opportunities to speak into somebody's life, to show them that you love them, to offer to pray for them, to care for them, to look out for them, 
If there are chances and opportunities for you to express your faith live and in person, teaching who our God is and what you're learning from him, then I don't think we should shy away from taking them. And the truth is, if we trust that God is going to work out the outcome, we're more likely to be willing to do that. The world is devoid of that, I think, at times. And I think our role is to teach where we can teach, just as Ezra came to teach. We can do that also informally in conversations with friends about discoveries we've made and sharing truth in love and sharing victories or growth, ways that we have developed or grown or changed by studying God's word and putting it to practice, obeying it, living it out in our lives and seeing the fruit that comes from it. How much life has gotten better or different our anxiety levels are dropped because the truth is when you follow the Lord, you can. When you learn to trust him more, your worry level drops because you know he's got it. It's really in those daily connections and conversations that it's really those that change hearts and minds. Uh, but we can't teach what we don't know and we can't teach what we don't live out. The other thing we see in this is the strength that leaders, godly leaders find in God's presence. It says in chapter 7, verse 6, the second half of what we just read, it says the king had granted him everything he requested because the hand of the Lord was on him. That's a phrase that's repeated in another part of our text that we read today in verse 9, right? Since the gracious hand of God was on him. But also he talks about in chapter 7, verse 28, where he says, because I was strengthened by the hand of the Lord by God. And in Ezra chapter 8, verse 18, since the gracious hand of our God was on us. So he repeats this concept of, of leaning into the fact that God has impacted them, carried them, and is present with them. They are embracing God's impact, but also anticipating that he will carry them forward. The context of that chapter 7, verse 28, it says, So I took courage because I was strengthened by the hand of the Lord my God, and I gathered Israelite teachers to return to me. He took courage from anticipating that God had been present, had supplied their needs, had given them everything they needed to go on this journey, but also that he would continue to. And so he took the extra step, Ezra did, of going out and gathering others to come with him. He also, again, is confident in God's provision. To give you context to chapter 8, verse 18, it says, since the gracious hand of God was on us, we brought a, he, they brought us Sherebiah, a man of insight from the descendants of Mali, a descendant of Levi, son of Israel. Because they could stand in the presence of God, because they trusted that he was leading them, they were able to be the leaders they needed to be. Ezra was able to boldly answer God's call and invite others to do the same because he's leaning on God's infinite provision and infinite strength and infinite presence rather than his own provision and his own strength. It's freeing to allow God to carry you. It's something we don't like, but the truth is his strength is seen in our weakness. You can ask the Apostle Paul about that one. Now, this brings us to Nehemiah chapter 5, where we see some more insights. It says in Nehemiah chapter 5, we're going to read verses 1 through 6, and then we're going to jump down and read 7 through 10. But 1 through 6 says this, it says, There was a widespread outcry from the people and their wives against their Jewish countrymen. Remember, he's the governor 
of this area. Some were saying, we, our sons and our daughters are numerous. Let us get grain so that we can eat and live. So they're on the verge of starvation. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields and vineyards and homes to get grain during this famine. We're giving up everything and selling everything. Still others were saying, we have borrowed money to pay the king his taxes in our fields and vineyards. We and our children are just like our countrymen and their children, yet we are subjecting our sons and daughters to slavery. You hear that? He's saying, look, some of my people are suffering in famine while others of my people are taking advantage of it. They're taking advantage of it. It says some of our daughters are already enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. And then it says in verse six, this is Nehemiah talking, I became extremely angry when I heard their outcry and these complaints. Nehemiah, as a godly leader, is demonstrating something we rarely see among political leaders today, truly righteous anger. There is nothing in this situation for Nehemiah to gain for himself by engaging in it. The truth is he is a governor. Chances are he is, and I know he is, he's eating well. He references it later in chapter five and in parts of chapter six that he's doing just fine. He's eating well, he's cared for, by engaging in the needs of those who are hurting, he's risking some things that might cost him something, that might cost him to sacrifice something valuable to him for the sake of something more important or worthy. And that's the well-being of the people. Godly leadership hears the cries of others and it responds in Psalm 82, verses 3 and 4, it says, provide justice for the needy. And then it describes what justice and needy for the fatherless is. It says, provide justice for the needy and the fatherless. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and needy and save them from the power of the wicked. Isaiah 1, verse 17 says, learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. If you're reading the CSB or, or maybe a lot of other versions as well, the heading at the top of chapter five in Nehemiah says social injustice. Now, those headings are added later. I don't think they're inspired by, by God himself. They're just added later by, later by editors. And by those who think these, these headings convey the meaning of this set of text. And I don't always agree, but here I do. I really think that Nehemiah is demonstrating what it means to be a godly leader by engaging in the needs of those who cannot speak for themselves or those who do not have the power to correct their difficulties. Because the truth is, then and now, money matters, right? If you've got wealth, you can make some things happen that you can't when you don't have access to those funds. This is a difficult thing for us because as it would have cost Nehemiah something, it would have cost him some status. It would have cost him maybe a standard of living. But as he looks around and he sees those who cannot even begin to make ends meet, as a godly leader, he says, no, I gotta do something about this. This is not, this is not okay. And he goes even further in this next section. Nehemiah takes God's people to task boldly takes them to task, even at risk of losing popularity among the influential. Because, you know, he's going to call them to task. It's going to cost them something too. That's something you can do 
when you real as a leader when you really trust God with the outcome when you really trust that he's going to provide no matter what in Nehemiah chapter 5 verses 7 through 10 it says after seriously considering the matter so he stopped and thought about it and I think that's important for us to say because we can really quickly jump on bandwagons really fast about an injustice that may not be accurate. And then we, we degrade or dilute our capacity to speak out when it really does matter. Um, just a word of, just a thought. But after seriously considering the matter, I accuse the nobles and officials saying to them, each of you is charging his countrymen interest. So I called a large assembly against them and said, we have done our best to buy back our Jewish countrymen who were sold to foreigners, but now you, sell your own countrymen, and we have to buy them back. They remained silent, and they could not say a word. <laughs> Funny. Then I said, what you are doing isn't right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God and not invite the reproach of our foreign enemies? Even I, as well as my brothers and my servants, have been lending them money and grain. Please, let's stop charging this interest. That's a bold and brave move from a political leader to call to task those who he who support he needs to continue to function as a leader because without the influence and without the people of of wealth and means who can drive the economy who can make things happen and get the job done who control the businesses and the land that they need to achieve things without their support his job as governor becomes infinitely more difficult. And yet, as a godly leader, he is willing to do that. Not because he hates them. Not because he wants to take things away from them. But because he wants to call them to recognizing the need of those who are hurting. And recognizing their responsibility to solve the problem. See, godly leaders are willing to hold others accountable to the standards that God has set forth. That's a hard, hard thing to do. Because there are so many other competing perspectives and standards. Importantly, this is about holding God's people to a standard even outside of, of the context of the synagogue or the church. This is about reminding them that if, if they are people of God in a place of influence in their world, a place where they can lead, that they have a responsibility to use that capacity to lift up those who cannot lift themselves. They have, a, they have, they have to have a commitment to defend the fatherless. That is the definition of justice Right to defend the fatherless and the oppressed and the poor and those who cannot handle it themselves. The truth is, the people of God have historically struggled with this contention. We would cry loudly when we had nothing about how others were not watching out for us, but once we get a bunch, we change. We start to think it's ours. The truth is, godly leaders recognize that none of it's ours, it's all his. Every ounce of it, it is his. And if we really believe that he is calling us to change, that he's calling us to be salt and light, that he's calling us to teach others who he is, 
by our words and our actions. And we know him to be a faithful, promise-keeping, loving, sacrificial God. Shouldn't we be the same? There are plenty of people in and around your world that you could bless. You could bless with finances. You could bless with a kind word. You could bless with an opportunity for a job. You could bless over and over and over again. There are ways that we can help others who are in need. My encouragement to you is if you really want to help lead everyone to a relationship with God, if I want to lead everyone to a relationship with God, then it's incumbent upon me in whatever leadership role I have, formally or informally, to represent my God for who he is and how I speak, how I act, and how I treat others. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and he be gracious to you. May he grant you favor and give you peace. God bless.